it's our privilege to have a wonderful, kind, loving pastor, Pastor Mitchell Gregory, to come and share with us tonight. It's a joy to be here. I hope you'll open your Bible. I encourage you to do so to the book of Isaiah, the sixth chapter. The series is titled Summer Classics. So in praying, I decided to choose what I consider to be the classic text in God's dealings with me during my college years, Bible college years, a season of hypocrisy and rebellion against the Lord and hearing a sermon on this text was the way the Holy Spirit rescued my soul and brought me back to what I think was my first love for Jesus. So I offer our study as an expression of gratitude to his mercy. And I'm also very grateful that my dear pastor friend Steve would trust me with this very high pulpit. (laughs) You're in Isaiah 6, but I would like to start with one of the most incredible stories, I think, in the Gospels, where Jesus is in the synagogue in the town of Capernaum, speaking the word of God, and the text says that as He spoke, the people were amazed. That doesn't surprise us because ultimately the only one who can amaze us with the sanctifying power of Holy Scripture is Jesus. But he was preaching the word to the people and suddenly and without warning, Jesus was interrupted by a demon Apparently, a man was possessed by a demon, and the demon took over his vocal cords and screamed at Jesus, asking, what do you want from us? Have you come to destroy us before the time? You see, demons live constantly afraid, knowing that the day will come when Jesus will bring them to eternal condemnation and total ruin. And this demon wanted to know, is this the moment? And he's screaming at Jesus, and through the vocal cords of this man, he says something that is profound. For we know who you are, the Holy One of God. Demons are evil, but so far as their theology is concerned, they are not liberal. He was exactly right. Jesus is the Holy One. One wonders, how was it possible for this demon to know the true identity of Jesus? We need to keep in mind that demons were not always demons. This very demon had lived for a time in heaven where he had seen the high king of heaven and the holy Lord of glory. And these demons participated in the rebellion of Lucifer and was cast out and became the evil beings that they are today. 
But as Jesus stood there in that temple, he could see behind this one veiled in human flesh that his true identity is that he is the eternal and holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty. That Jesus is the Holy One. We are in Isaiah 6. That famous vision of the prophet where the seraphs hovering around the throne of God unceasingly in white hot worship sing holy, holy, holy. And before we look at the verses of this vision, we need to have one truth fixed in our minds. The holy Lord that Isaiah saw is Jesus. And the reason we know that is true and are not merely reading New Testament theology into the text is because John in the 12th chapter of his gospel, after quoting from Isaiah 6, says in verse 41, Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke of him. Does that not thrill your soul? Isaiah saw the glory of Jesus high and lifted up and he spoke of him. And so it's our burden to survey the sacred vision and trust the Holy Spirit to enrapture us with a vision of the majesty and mercy of Jesus Christ. And the vision begins in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. On balance, Uzziah was a good king. Few kings coveted the prosperity and security of his people like Uzziah did. Technology advanced under his rule. His army was mighty. He rebuilt cities and the people enjoyed success and prosperity. And he ruled for over a half century. But it's been well said that Uzziah is the king who had a glorious reign that came to a ghastly end. For there came a day toward the end of his reign when pride gripped his heart. He goes into the temple of the Lord and assumes for himself a duty reserved exclusively for the priest. And in that instance, he committed an act of sacrilege in the temple where he essentially set aside the word of God and robbed God of glory. And at that moment, the Lord struck the king with leprosy so that he was forced to live in solitude and Uzziah died a leper. But he was celebrated as a good king. And in the year that that good king died, with Assyria breathing down the backs of the people of God, wondering what's going on, Isaiah is granted a vision of the true king, the heavenly king, the king whose crown cannot topple from his head and lay in the dust. The one who is self-existent, self-sufficient, and unchanging in his eternal existence. 
where Isaiah sees Jesus ruling and reigning in supremacy at the highest pinnacle in the universe. And the train of his robe fills the temple, a symbol that no majesty equals his and there is no room for a rival king. Or as the psalmist says, the Lord is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. He is no anemic deity struggling to control and rule the universe he has made. He is high and exalted above all opposition, above all appeals, above all opinion polls. His plans cannot be thwarted. His purposes cannot be stymied. He rules. And so we read in the first verse, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. And that title literally means the sovereign one. That's who Jesus is. One of the reasons that the Lord gives us these visions of the exaltation and majesty and supremacy of the Lord is to persuade us by means of sacred scripture that he reigns and rules in supremacy far above all change and decay. And our Lord wants us to live every single day with a vivid sense of this unseen reality that Jesus is the king, the sovereign who has the right to impose obligations on your life and on mine. Is this the Lord Jesus that you love and serve and praise? What did Isaiah see? And perhaps more weighty, what did Isaiah hear? Well, let's read verses two and three. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. And with two they were flying. And they were calling out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. These seraphs, are always worshiping, always obeying the Lord. The reason we know this is because in the Hebrew text, all the verbs indicate continuous action, unbroken obedience, unbroken worship. How many? Revelation seems to indicate that there were thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. A multitude too majestic to count. But oh, is the anatomy of these seraphs strange. Each possessing three pair of wings. I think there's meaning here. One pair of wings is used to shield their eyes. For seraphs are persuaded that they are unworthy to gaze with unveiled faces into the dazzling glory and burning holiness of Jesus. And two wings are used to cover their feet as a symbol of deep humility and self-effacing modesty. And the final pair of wings is used to speed the seraphim in the glad service of the Lord. 
But let's think about this for a moment. Not just list meaning. These seraphs always have their existence and perform their worship in the immediate presence of the beauty of holiness. Always looking into the face of the Lord. Always. And listen, these seraphs have never sinned. They are confirmed in holiness. Not participating in the earlier rebellion. They are sinless and remain sinless. In other words, you could say that these seraphs are holy. But apparently... Because they cover their feet and shield their eyes and take the posture of reverence and awe and humility before the Lord. The only conclusion we can reach is that there is a vast difference between created holiness and uncreated holiness. That the holiness of the seraphs is a bestowed holiness. That the holiness of the Lord is an infinite, inexaltable supply of majesty. And the gulf between the two, no one can span. That's what he saw. What did he hear? The seraphs sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. Verse 3, the whole earth is full of his glory. These seraphs celebrate the omnipotence of Christ, that he is the Lord Almighty. He possesses an incomprehensible plentitude of power, in the words of Tozer, a potency that is absolute. His energy never runs out. His strength never needs to be replenished. He always possesses all the power he needs to fulfill all of his purposes and to keep all of his promises. You remember, after the Lord humbled King Nebuchadnezzar, And he was caught up in the worship of the sovereign Lord. Nebuchadnezzar said, he is in the heavens and does whatever he pleases with all the powers of heaven. And then the king adds, no one can hold back his hand. It stayed. In the words of Jeremiah, God does not have a withered arm. And in the words of Revelation, Jesus is the Lord God omnipotent. Who reigns. And then these seraphs sing. Don't you wish you could just hear it? Holy. 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 Consider how the Bible talks about holiness. 1 Samuel chapter 2 verse 2. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. 
Hosea 11.9, for I am God and not a man, the holy one among you. Isaiah 40 verse 25, to whom will you compare me and who is my equal, says the holy one. Collectively, these verses are telling us that God is entirely different from creatures that he has made, that you can compare him to no one, that he has no equal. The root of the word holy means to cut or to separate. And essentially the idea is this, Jesus is a cut above us, infinitely so. He is in a class by himself, one of a kind, without equal. In other words, the idea of holiness embraces his transcendent majesty. He is the king. But it's also true that the concept of holiness is tied to his moral goodness. His absolute purity. So that in his essence, he is a glowing white center of absolute purity. There is not the least bit of evil mixed in with the moral goodness of God. He is flawless, sinless in all his ways. That's his holiness. Perhaps an easy way to wrap our minds around this concept is to recall to mind the table grace that we frequently teach our children. God is great and God is good. Let us thank him for this food. And I understand we have food after this. But the concept of greatness is a concept of majesty. Kings are called King the Great. But the good, the word good is a moral term. So that the holiness of God in Scripture brings together these two themes. That so far as his greatness is concerned, he is unrivaled in majesty. So far as his goodness is concerned, he is unimpeachable in character. Do you remember what the talking beavers said to the children in the land of Narnia? Safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I say. Kings aren't safe. They rule with majesty. But this king is pure. He's good, I say. And you notice in the text that the idea of holy is raised to the superlative degree. Nowhere in Holy Scripture will you ever read that the Lord is grace, 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 or faithful, 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 or justice, justice, justice. But twice you read, He is holy, holy, holy. The reason is because this is a linguistic device in Hebrew designed to raise a truth to the supreme level. What one commentator says here is that Isaiah invented a super superlative. 
Think about that. Where each holy, the force of each holy becomes more intense and more powerful so that it's almost as if he's saying holy, holier, holiest. And why would he raise it to the superlative degree? I think the answer is that if there is anything about Jesus that is supremely weighty in terms of significance, it is this. That he is unrivaled majesty and burning purity. He is great and he is good. He is holy, holy, holy. And then Isaiah says, the seraphs are wise enough to sing not only about the beauty that surrounds the heavenly throne, but about what we see while our eyes are veiled from looking into that place. For at the end of verse 3, he says, The whole world, the whole earth is full of his glory. John Calvin said, and he was absolutely right, this world is a theater of the glory of God. Everywhere you look, The glory of God is on display. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies show forth his handiwork. So that created reality is a constant explosion of the glory of God. And right this moment, you are in the presence of the glory of God. And that's very good news. Because no event in your life No moment in your life, be it a sweet or bitter providence, ever takes place outside the glory of the Lord. What a vision. What did the prophet feel? Oh, verse 4. It reads... And the sound of their... At the sound of their voices... The doorpost and the threshold shook and the temple was filled with smoke. 10,000 times 10,000 seraphs singing the holiness of the Lord. A number like that probably broke the sound barrier of heaven. Or perhaps in popular jargon, the place rocked. The foundation shook. But there just might be something more here. I warn us, it's most uncomfortable. But it is the absolute truth. Did you know that in the scriptures, the heavenly throne is built on a foundation of justice? So that we read in Psalm 92, excuse me, Psalm 97, verse 2. The clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Did you hear that? Righteousness, the foundation of his throne is justice. 
for the judge of all the earth will do right. And the place is shaking and the smoke is covering God and shielding him for he is of pure eyes and cannot look upon iniquity. What we have here may very well be a visual reminder that the God who is eternal and almighty and holy, whose glory is seen everywhere in creation, is one who plays for keeps. And that he is most willing to render his just verdict on the precious immortal souls of the unrepentant. It's a traumatic scene. Do we feel the weight of it yet? How would you feel if you were in Isaiah's place? Well, before I read verse 5, a few years ago, I guess a decade or so ago actually, a denomination in Britain uh, pulled 50,000 copies of its monthly magazine. And the reason is because one of the authors in an article had referred to a prominent member of the royal family as a miserable sinner. Which is interesting because the royals are members of the Church of England. They make use of the prayer book. So all royals and those in that church frequently pray the prayer of confession asking God to forgive miserable offenders. But why did they pull the article, the magazine? The printed reason read like this. We do not wish to give the impression that the doctrines of the Christian faith create emotional trauma for people. God does not share that burden. For Isaiah says here, woe is me. Verse 5, for I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Here is the prophet announcing the oracle of doom upon his own head. Whenever a prophet began his preaching with the word, blessed are you, it was good. But if he ever said, woe be unto you, like Jesus, woe be unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, clean on the outside, but full of dead men's bones. It was downhill from there. Woe. And Isaiah turns the oracle of judgment upon his own head and upon all the peoples. And he says, our lips are unclean. I wonder if he's thinking about the leprosy of Uzziah. Because a leper was to shout unclean, unclean. Was Isaiah saying, we can't join the worship of the seraphs. We have leprosy in our mouths. Unclean. Unclean. Do you remember what Quasimodo, the hunchback of Notre Dame said once he got that beautiful woman up in the high tower? And he looked at her in her face and he said, I never realized how ugly I was until I saw your beauty. When Jesus grants you a glimpse of his majestic beauty and his burning purity, 
That is the moment in your life and mine when you become profoundly undeceived. You know the truth about yourself. Peter is in a boat with some disciples on the Sea of Galilee. Fishing at the wrong time, at the wrong place, but at Jesus' commands, reluctantly so, until every fish in the Sea of Galilee tried to swim into his nets. And do you remember what Peter did? Hey, Jesus, this is great. Join my fishing business. We will have the most lucrative division business on these shores. He collapsed at the feet of Jesus. And he says, depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. Having seen the power and something of the holiness of Christ, he is there before him. Right this moment, I'm thirsty anyway. But I am really thirsty for the gospel. And so we read in verses 6 and 7 of Isaiah. I know your heart will break out in worship when you read the words. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand. With it he had taken with the tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. That is the gospel. His actions were not designed to hurt, but to heal Isaiah. The seraph goes to the place where an atoning sacrifice has been altered. He takes the fiery coal of holy mercy and he purges away the leprosy in the mouth of the prophet. And he says, I've taken your guilt completely away. Can I just ask your pardon and let my theological imagination wonder a bit here to kind of give us a new covenant feel of what happened there because what is foreshadowed here is the final victorious work of Christ on the cross isn't it do you remember what Philippians 2 says that Jesus exalted in heaven one day laid aside the prerogatives of his deity and clothed himself in our humanity and came into this world and lived as a servant. And then it says he was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Do you remember the movement there in Philippians 2? Exalted, he humbles himself in the incarnation obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Isaiah sees the Lord high and exalted. The train of his robe fills the temple. The seraphs sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. And what the gospel says is that Jesus got up from that throne and walked over to that altar and got on it for you and me. That's the gospel where he takes our sin upon himself and absorbs the wrath due us that it might be diverted from us. 
Do you have any idea how clean you are when the holy fire of the Lord's mercy? I was thinking about this today when I was walking and praying. Isaiah said, woe is me. Charles Wesley taught us to sing. Tis mercy all immense and free. For oh my God, it found out. Woe is me. Mercy found out me. That's the gospel. And finally, for the first time in the text, the Lord speaks in verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? That us there in the Hebrew is the plural of majesty and royalty. This is the voice of the king. And Isaiah says, go ask Jeremiah. He's like a school kid raising his hand saying, teacher, teacher, I know the answer. Look at me, call on me. Send me a guilty conscience. Listen closely. A guilty conscience liberated by the mercy of God unleashes us. It is mercy that qualifies us to be a voice to our generation. No more holding back. No more fence setting. It is time for bold, antsy, gotta get going, Eagerness to praise Jesus and proclaim Jesus. And so I tell you on the authority of this biblical vision. As I close that Jesus Christ the Lord is able to touch you with the holy fire of mercy. Jesus is able to cleanse you exactly where you are dirty. Jesus is able To take all your guilt away. And Jesus is able to liberate you from yourself. And to energize you to be a voice for him. Here am I, send me. Are you willing to say that to Jesus tonight? Shall we pray? Oh, Holy Spirit, eternal Holy Father, oh, Lord Jesus, the Holy One, make your unchanging, eternal, glorious holiness a burning reality in our souls. And use us as voices of praise and proclamation to our generation. For we ask in your name. Amen.